today on Against the Grain. In many immigration detention centers, detainees can choose to work for wages. But is the language of choice in this context misleading? I'm CS. Katie Bales talks about unfree labor within what she calls the immigration industrial complex coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Paid work is offered to many people held in immigration detention facilities in the U.S. and other countries. If detainees are free to decline or accept what's offered, does that mean the work is voluntary? Does that mean the work is unproblematic from a human rights perspective? In what ways might a detainee be or feel compelled to work? Katie Bales deploys the concept of unfree labor to assess what's going on within what she calls the immigration industrial complex. Katie is senior lecturer at the University of Bristol Law School. She contributed a chapter titled Rethinking Unfree Labor, the Immigration Industrial Complex, to the new volume Global Labor Migration, New directions. When Katie Bales and I connected recently, I asked how many immigration detention centers are currently in operation globally. Globally throughout the world, if we look at the global detention project data, which is what I used within the chapter as a, a source of information, they've mapped the existence of 1,935 immigration detention centers throughout the world and 1,252 of them are in use. So it's pretty prolific, um, and they're throughout the global north and global south, and that's not even accounting for uh, immigration detainees who are held within prisons, and that's quite routine as well. So if we think about it in terms of immigration detention centres plus prisons, I mean, I don't have a figure for that, but you can imagine that it, it's significantly more than that and that this is perhaps a modest figure that I've used in the chapter. For what reasons do migrants end up in immigration detention centres? It's all sorts really linked to immigration status. So it could be overstaying a visa, it could be breaking visa conditions or immigration controls. In the UK, we have some people who actually are seeking asylum, so making claim for refugee status. So they've come to the country seeking sanctuary and they're also liable to immigration detention as well. So it's quite vast, but all is linked to this idea of non-citizenship, which makes an individual vulnerable to immigration detention. And is it your sense that immigration detainees are put in prison rather than in holding facilities, immigration holding facilities, uh, because there is an overflow typically maybe then of, you know, there are too many immigrants and therefore some of them have to be put in prison rather than in these detention centers? Well, I think it, it varies in terms of reason why people are put in prison. So... In some countries, it's more routine for people to be put in prison. So in Kenya, for example, it's actually unlawful to enter without the correct sort of paperwork. That's the 2011 Kenya Citizenship and Immigration Act. So anyone who enters unlawfully or who unlawfully remains is guilty of a criminal offence, and that can lead to imprisonment of up to three years. So that's more sort of routine in the sense that they would be moved to prison. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in some instances, it is a case that uh, the, the immigration detention centres are full, and so people are being moved to, to prisons. But it's a fine line between criminality and movement and immigration. So, I mean... Obviously, people are imprisoned as well in immigration detention centres, but I guess the 
the nature of imprisonment can be different depending whether you're in a detention centre or a prison and the community that you're also being detained with at the same time. Do you have any sense of how prevalent the practice of having people in immigration detention centers or immigrants uh, put in prison, having them work, uh, do work for wages of some kind or giving them the option of doing work for wages in these facilities? It's quite under-researched, this area, and that's actually what led me to writing this chapter. Uh, I started with an article which focused on UK immigration detention centres and labour within immigration detention in the UK. And then I realised from writing that that actually there was very little data or information on the sort of global picture of labour within immigration detention, which led me to writing this chapter. And it's really difficult to get an exact figure of how many people are working within immigration detention. And I think that's partly the nature of immigration detention in itself. Um, The data can be very difficult to get hold of, even in countries like the UK. So when we're thinking about it on a global scale, that becomes much more difficult. And it's, I think it's a lot more prolific than people think. My impression is that people aren't really aware of what's going on, uh, especially, you know, when I've spoken to students in the UK about what's happening within our immigration detention centres and that people are working for one pound an hour. People are very unaware that that's happening. I think people have this idea of the prison industrial complex in America and that these things are happening in the US, but they don't really think about the fact that they're not just uh, confined to prisons, they're also prevalent in immigration detention centres. And also this is a global problem. So it's happening in the global north. It's also happening in the global south. And as I mentioned, it's happening in immigration detention centres. And it's also happening in the context of prisons where immigration detainees are, are held. So the framework, the theoretical conceptual framework you use in this article, in this chapter, in the new volume, Global Labor Migration, centers around unfree labor. Is an understanding of what unfree labor is dependent on a grasp of what free labor is? I don't think it's necessary that we have a specific definition of free labor in order to understand or get our heads around unfree labor. In my chapter, I go with a bit of a a Marxist perspective and this idea that uh, the sort of double bind of freedom that the proletariat are free in the sense that they can choose their employer but they're essentially coerced because they don't have access to the means of production um, and therefore the means of sort of living. So I guess when I think about this notion of free labour I think we have to kind of nuance it and understand that actually many people are working under coercive conditions but there's a scale within that and I think this is why the unfree labour methodology and sort of theory is helpful because it enables us to kind of think about all different types of coercion and pressures that might well pressure someone into working or agreeing to work. So the framework that I've used kind of thinks about unfree labour as being on a continuum. So this sort of binary between free and unfree isn't there. And I find that binary quite limiting. And that's why I prefer this idea of the unfree labour continuum. So, you know, at one end, uh, we have sort of instances of slavery and forced labour. But the problem with when we think about forced labour in a legal sense is that actually it's quite restrictive. It doesn't take into account economic pressures that might compel someone into engaging in particular forms of work. And so I wanted to move away from that kind of liberal legal idea of forced labour, which I I think definitely has value. You know, it, it has its use. But if I applied that framework to, for example, the labour of immigration detainees in the UK, 
then that wouldn't be considered to be forced labour because it doesn't meet the forced labour indicators. Uh, one of the sort of key aspects of that is that within the UK context, immigration detainees agree to working. So they're not necessarily forced in that traditional sense. And that consent basically fractures this idea of whether it's forced. Uh, if we think about it in terms of the ILO 11 indicators of forced labour, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fall under that because of this idea of voluntariness. So that was kind of problematic, and I guess it shuts down analysis, which is why the unfree labour continuum is more helpful in thinking about, okay, well, maybe it doesn't fall under that specific definition of forced labour, but we can still talk about it as being highly exploitative, and we can still think about the reasons why someone might be compelled uh, to migrate in the first place and what brings them into the sphere of immigration detention and then ultimately labour within immigration detention and the conditions that they're working under. The ILO being the International Labour Organization. And you mentioned workers not owning the means of production, you know, members of the proletariat. Um, can you just, for the benefit of our audience, define what means of production or or what Karl Marx meant by means of production? Well, I guess means of production, when we're thinking about it in the context of Marx, the sort of easy way to think about it is the sphere of industrialization, which was his period of writing. Um, you know, when we think about the factories and the equipment that allows one to sort of produce a product and a commodity for sale on the market, it's access to that kind of the means of production, so the ability to produce something for sale. Um, now, I guess that's sort of changed. We've we've moved away from that specific industrial idea of the means of production, but it's um, so we need to think about it more broadly now in terms of different types of jobs. So it might be the ability to kind of have. Uh, a shop or produce food stuffs, have the machinery to produce food stuffs, etc. So, you know, it's specific to the particular industry or or job or profession that we're thinking about. And it's the I guess it's the the mechanics and the machinery that allows us to produce something for sale. Right. And the fact that the worker does not own the means of production means that the worker in some ways is forced to sell their labor power and therefore their options may be very limited if they don't have the kinds of skills employers need. Yes. And I think this all links back to land ownership um, and the idea that in the move towards capitalism, a lot of land um, and indigenous communities were dispossessed of their land. Uh, this also happened in the UK through enclosures where... Uh, so we're, we're going back here in the sort of transition from feudalism to capitalism. So feudalism where a lord owned the land, but people would sort of toil the land so they had access to soil and... Um, you know, the ability to grow vegetables and eat and, and farm cattle and chickens, etc. So they could produce their own means of subsistence and they could they were pretty much self-reliant as long as they gave so much to the, the lord that owned the land. That was the system in the UK. And then there was a system of enclosures that came in through pressure from capitalist merchants. So the land was then portioned off and people were removed from living on the land and that process which has happened globally where people are pushed off land that they might have been living on makes them enter the market because if you don't have access to the land and you don't have the ability to to grow vegetables or uh, produce the means of subsistence that you need to live then you have to enter the sort of capitalist market and you have to engage in in labour as a means of of living. 
Katie Bales joins us on Against the Grain. She is Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Bristol Law School. I'm C.S. Song. Genevieve LeBaron uses a three-part framework to analyze unfree labor. And the first part of that is, the first component is the systemic compulsions and forms of coercion that underpin people's entrance into the labor market. In this context, you talk about, in this chapter, the fact that laboring immigration detainees in countries like the U.S. and the U.K. are from the global south, are often people of color from the less wealthy global south. How does this help you understand uh, the forms of compulsions and coercion that might be involved in having people who are in these detention facilities or in prisons as as migrants, though, um, and having them or coercing them into doing work. Yeah, so in the chapter, I talk about this idea that many, and I'd say the majority of people we see languishing in immigration detention centers are from the global south. And I think that's really problematic when we think about it in the context of colonial histories and the exploitation of these populations for capital gain and the way in which global north communities and European communities have sort of benefited from the labour of these individuals throughout history. LeBaron's framework, the first part of it is looking, as you said, at the global systemic compulsions and forms of coercion that under people's entrance into the labour market. So I think about that in the context of the distribution of land and resources that might compel someone to sell their labour power. So um, private ownership of the means of production and no commons, no commons, no access to the land, as I mentioned earlier, where people have been dispossessed of their land. And when we think about that in terms of colonial histories, then it becomes clear that a lot of the sort of global wealth distribution that people take for granted now in terms of, uh, you know, this idea of the sort of wealthy and civilised, I'm doing air quotes when I say civilised, global north, um, and that that's, you know, just a a product of modernity, that uh, we were more civilised and, you know, we went in and we, we aided these countries by colonizing them and I'm when I say we I'm talking about European powers here uh, such as Britain for example so when we think about that history and then we look at what's happening now where people are leaving their countries of origin often because well there can be many reasons why someone leaves their country of origin but often it might be due to poverty political instability you know Reasons which really, when you look back, are very much vested in the instability that was caused by colonialism um, and the pillaging of particular countries and the huge huge wealth extraction that was taken from particular countries in order to fund and fuel industrialization and capitalism within the global north. So I think it's really important that we look back at that history when we're thinking about these labour processes and why someone might leave their country of origin. Okay, someone's left their country. Uh, I think we can link that back into those histories. And then when someone arrives in whatever country it is that they've gone to, and then they're essentially imprisoned and put to work for, you know, one pound an hour, basically often at wages that are far less than what a national citizen would be paid. Sometimes uh, it's forced labour. So in the context of Libya, for example, detainees are working under forced labour conditions. But often it's not forced in that sense and people are paid, but they're underpaid. And I think, again, within the context of those histories and, of course, not forgetting the transatlantic slave trade, that's really problematic. And it's something that I wanted to kind of link back to when thinking about the process that's uh, that's taking place within detention centres globally throughout the world and not forgetting that millions of hours of work are taking place 
in immigration detention centres throughout the world. This isn't just a small issue. Um, It's a big one and it's growing. And what you just said connects no doubt to your argument in your piece that modern migration from former colonial states qualifies as a form of decolonization. How so? This is on grounds that these movements can kind of respond to the benefit structure that's been created by imperialism itself. So the fact that in certain states it'll be easier to uh, access certain uh, rights and a certain standard of living. And so in that sense, people are moving in order to gain access to those benefits that were instilled by the imperial project. And what about ideas of racial superiority that undergirded the colonial project? Are those ideas still around with enough force to affect a government policy, affect migration policy? From my own perspective, I think that's a bit of a no-brainer. And yes is the answer. I think there's still huge sort of racial connotations in immigration control and who we seek to block from entering the country and who we allow into the country and the rights that people are are given when they when they enter is very much dependent on the country in which they come from i'll give you an example because as well as this this chapter i also do research into the the rights of asylum seekers in the UK, so people who are coming to the UK to access um, sanctuary and refugee status. And my friend Lucy Mablin wrote a brilliant book about this, uh, which focuses on sort of imperialism and asylum and the way in which that's connected. And actually what we saw in the UK is that Uh, For a long time, things like welfare benefits, for example, were vaguely similar to what national citizens would uh, enjoy. But during the 1990s, when the profile of the refugee began to change from the white European to, you know, non-white populations from former colonial states, we saw a huge increase in restrictions and that's slowly been getting more and more restrictive as time goes on. So... Yeah, I think it is hugely linked to issues of of race um, and ideas of human hierarchy. I think we can see that in the response that Europe and the US and, you know, most of the global north has had to the crisis in Ukraine compared to the crisis in Syria, for example, or Afghanistan and the way in which those people are portrayed in the media. Um, you know, in the UK at the minute were talking about creating detention centres and sending people to Rwanda if they enter the country illegally. Um, But people enter the country illegally because there's no safe route into the country because as soon as a problem erupts in in a different country, um, visa restrictions are required to enter the UK. But, you know, in the instance of Ukraine, a specific visa was created to allow them, a specific form of immigration control was created to allow them to enter. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I think that should happen on a on a much wider scale. But why are we treating those individuals differently than we are, you know, people from other countries and other minorities? And I think it's very telling that uh, when you look at the media portrayal of of those communities, this this idea that people from the Ukraine were more like people from the UK, and that that doesn't apply in you know in other instances where people are coming from, like Lebanon, for example, or um, you know different countries throughout Africa. So I think it's it's hugely problematic, um, and I think it does go back to this idea of human worth. And, you know, it goes back to that idea of uh, a lot of what the colonial imperial project was based on, which was dehumanizing certain populations. And I think we we still see that. We still see that form of dehumanization uh, where people are trying to enter who we don't want to enter. And often that is 
people from the global south. So, yeah, I think it needs to be talked about a lot more and unearthed. But there are people doing research into this. And there's some, there's some brilliant literature and work on this particular issue. That's the voice of Katie Bales, legal scholar based at the University of Bristol Law School in the UK. We'll take a short break and return with more insights from Katie into the situation of detainees within what she calls the immigration industrial complex. Please stay with us. And you are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. Katie Bales joins us. A chapter she wrote called Rethinking Unfree Labor, the Immigration Industrial Complex, is part of the new volume Global Labor Migration, New Directions, edited by Eileen Boris, Heidi Gottfried, Julie Green, and Ju Chong Tam, and published by the University of Illinois Press. You cite information from 2020 about the top refugee-sending countries, which were? Yeah, in the book, the countries that I cite as being the the top global refugee-sending countries at that time in 2020 were Syria, Afghanistan, Myanmar, South Sudan, and Venezuela. Um, And I make the point that all of these countries were directly occupied or colonized by European powers, including Britain, Spain, France, and Italy. And again, I think that's important when we're thinking about who is locked up within immigration detention centres, who is being exploited in terms of their labour power, and where those individuals come from and why. So why are people migrating? And what is the the history of their country that might uh, compel someone to migrate? Because often, well, in the context of refugees, they're forced migrants, they're avoiding, you know, persecution. But the the context of refugee is also quite narrow. It's dependent on a legal definition. And there can be people who are fleeing for extremely valid reasons that fall outside of this idea of the the United Nations Refugee Convention, which is what the legal framework that's used to define the refugee, um, you know, people who are fleeing uh Poverty, for example, and again, different degrees of poverty and the ability to kind of provide for their family. Somalia is also a country that generates a large number of of refugees. It also is a country that owes a huge amount of money to the International Monetary Fund. So as a result of, of loans made by the IMF to Somalia, is there a connection there? Yeah, I mean, we talk about this historical idea of colonialism and the fact that people were dispossessed of access to their land. But this idea of dispossession isn't just confined to the colonial era. Um, It's also taking place now within uh, the neoliberal ages. And we can see that uh, in this context of loan conditions which are imposed by institutions such, such as the World Bank and IMF, uh, which basically replicate systems of dependency. Um, and they do this by charging exorbitant interest rates um, where loans are taken out. So in the context of Somalia, yes, they're in huge debt to the International Monetary Fund. Um, And as a result of that, there's widespread poverty within the country. Um, So within the the book chapter, I talk about the fact that 
at the time of writing, um, 70% of the population were surviving on less than $1.90 a day. I mean, that, that's probably changed since I wrote the book chapter. Um, and also, uh, in the case of Somalia, I also talk about the fact that colonial intervention disrupted physical and cultural boundaries within the country. Um, and that was through the process of colonialism and British and Italian rule. And that also contributes to, to tensions within the country and the ongoing civil war there. What is the significance for your argument about uh, unfree labor and unfree labor being a big part, an essential part of immigration detention around the world, that Mexican men are the most common type of immigration detainee in the U.S., and that many of these men need to send money home to Mexico to support their families. So part of the benefit of using the unfree labor framework is that we can really think broadly about what it is that compels someone to engage in certain labor practices. And remittances, which is the process of kind of sending money overseas to provide for family um, back in your country of origin, uh, came through as being one of the significant drivers in terms of not only just migration, but also uh, engaging in labor within immigration detention. So the detainees are sort of active within a process of social reproduction. And by the term social reproduction, I mean the sort of ability to produce for oneself and one's family um, the, the means of life. So, you know, access to food, access to, to shelter, to heating, etc. So the ability to provide for oneself and one's family so that one can survive in the world. Uh, so, so social reproduction and this idea of remittances came through as being one of the significant drivers as to why someone might agree to labour within immigration detention. And of course, in terms of immigrants, that is one of the other significant drivers that compels someone to leave their country of origin. So not only just uh, in terms of the the sort of micro practice of labour within immigration detention, but also if we think about it on a macro scale, this idea of remittances is also something that compels someone to leave their country of origin in the first place. And social reproduction is also what you have uncovered is work being done, some of the work being done by immigration detainees in these holding facilities and in prisons. So are we talking about prison housework of a type or holding facility housework as a type? And also what other kinds of things are immigration detainees being asked to do? What other work tasks do they typically perform? So one of the the sort of central findings um, from the chapter is that in similarity to the, the prison industrial complex, immigration detainees are undertaking this prison housework. And I got I got that phrase from Noah Zatz's work, um, which is the idea that they're cooking, cleaning, they're basically maintaining the the detention center itself. So that's quite common. And I'd say that was one of the most common forms of labor within immigration detention that I found, but also things like hairdressing, gardening, um, cleaning, painting, decorating, as I say, ma maintaining the detention centers themselves. But labor within immigration detention is not just confined to this. Um, in some countries, immigration detainees are taking part in labor that actually produces goods for sale on the outside. And immigration detainees are also working within prisons. And we know um, that there's a lot of production taking place in prisons throughout the world as well. I mean, in the UK now, we, we're moving towards this idea of the prison factory. So it's prison housework that's internal to the detention centre, but it's also about production for goods on the outside. And in certain countries, such as Libya, for example, detainees are basically being forced to work and they're being hired out to external employers in these sort of work gangs um, 
illegally removed from the detention centres themselves, let out by guards and uh, leased to employers who are getting them to do manual labour, which, as I said, is is forced. And then once they've finished the job, they're brought back to the detention centre and they're, they're locked back up again. And I think one of the things that sort of struck me when writing the chapter is this idea that within Europe we have much more civilised systems of immigration detention. Again, I use the term civilised in air quotes, um, that we're not compelling people to work, you know, that there's there's the idea of voluntariness within that, which I dispute. That's, you know, the basis of the whole chapter is that this concept of voluntariness doesn't necessarily rule out the idea of exploitation. But also... Uh, countries within Europe, such as Britain, are responsible for what's taking place in Libya because we pay the Libyan government to uh, hold people within their country so they can't cross the water and enter Europe. Um, And that's part of this idea of sort of fortress Britain, fortress Europe, that we are paying Libya to expand their detention estate. We're also paying Libyan officials to intercept uh, people as they're trying to sort of uh, enter Europe. And so there's culpability and a sort of a network of culpability. It's not just about one particular country. It's about the system that's taking place more broadly to prevent people from entering global North countries, which uh, implicates global South countries within that system of border control. And there's also you know, great deals of money that's being passed throughout this system in order to enforce that. So it's not just about, oh, it's terrible that that's taking place in Libya and that's the Libyans' fault. Europe is also responsible for what's happening in Libya, as it is responsible for what's happening on their own shores. Could you give us more details about these payments made by Europe, by European countries to bolster immigration detention and enforcement in countries like Libya? Yeah, so there's contractual relationships um, between Europe and many other states that sort of um, border Europe or where people are going through transit in order to enter Europe. Um, And we can think about them as sort of gatekeeper states. So I mentioned Libya, for example, who are being paid to expand their detention estate and being paid to intercept people who are trying to travel and enter Europe. So the process of border control costs money and these countries are being are being funded in order to prevent people from, from entering global north countries um, and Europe. So prior to the war which in Ukraine, which is when I wrote this chapter, um, that was also happening in the case study of Ukraine as well, who'd been given 30 million euros of investment from the EU in order to establish detention centres so that these individuals, these uh, immigrants, couldn't enter Europe. So they would be held in the gatekeeper state of the Ukraine so that Europe didn't become responsible for their, their refugee claim or you know, for whatever reason it is that they're migrating. My guest is Katie Bales. She is senior lecturer in law at the University of Bristol Law School. She co-edits the Futures of Work blog. She is a trustee for the Bristol City of Sanctuary charity and a working group member for the Sanctuary Scholarships team at the University of Bristol. We are talking about a chapter she contributed to the new volume, Global Labor Migration, New Directions. And the program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. On the issue of of unfree labor, the nature of labor being done by immigration detainees, you point to the fact that often a person's possessions and money are taken from that individual when they enter an immigration detention facility. What does that mean for uh, that person in terms of their need, uh, one, to buy things, to purchase things from the the commissaries within these facilities, and second, to 
say yes when they are offered work for, for pay, for, of course, incredibly small pay, but for pay. Yeah, so in many countries, which is, again, similar to the prison industrial complex, an individual's possessions and property is taken off them as they enter the immigration detention estate. So as a result of that, people are entering stripped of money, stripped of their possessions. And as a result, they're then having to purchase goods and services from within the detention centre itself. So there's a market process that's taking place internally within the detention centre. And the research and literature that I've read also indicates that these stores that are present within the immigration detention centres themselves uh, stock goods and sell goods at inflated prices. So although in many instances within immigration detention, detainees are given sort of basic meals and obviously they're, they're held within detention centres in terms of shelter. People still want, you know, access to snacks, um, toiletries, tobacco, phone credit, postage stamps, things like that so they can contact family members on the outside or speak to their lawyers. So again, taking that unfree labour approach allows us to sort of think more broadly about why it is that someone might engage with this type of work if they have the option to, assuming that it is consensual. And this is one of the conditions of the labour process. So they enter um, without their property and then they're sort of, I guess, forced to to purchase these goods from, from within the detention centre itself, which you know, the detention center profits from those purchases. Right. The issue of profit is very important here. You write that immigration detainees play a key role in the profit-making processes of major global corporations. Um, Talk about that and about how much corporations can benefit by using these detainees' labor as opposed to paying minimum wage or above to a worker on the outside. So a huge number of the detention centres in the context of immigration are contracted out to private corporations. So um, this includes Corrections Corporation of America, the GEO Group, G4S, Circo, and Management and Training Corporation. And many of these companies also control private prisons, private security and deportation services. And these companies get paid. So, I mean, there's there's different processes going on here. Of course, they're paid per inmate that they house. Often that's much more expensive to, to house someone within detention than it is to house someone within the local community um, and give them access to welfare, access to work uh, or social housing. So they're profiting in that sense. But the other thing that's taking place here is that then the individuals are working within the immigration detention centres. And as I mentioned earlier, they're undertaking processes of prison housework. They're they're maintaining the detention centres themselves. They're cooking, they're cleaning, uh, they're gardening. And if that work wasn't taking place, then someone else would have to do it. And the other people that would be doing it would have to be paid, assuming there is national minimum wage, um, either the national minimum wage or the going market rate for that work. So in that sense, there's cost cutting going on here. And it's interesting because in the context of the UK, as I said, I've, I wrote specifically on just the UK in a different article. There's much sort of contestation that these companies are not profiting from the labour of detainees. And, you know, they've issued statements and even the sort of government inspectorate has um, proclaimed that, you know, these companies are not profiting from the labour of these these detainees. But then we also have data to show that within two years in the UK, over one million hours worth of work uh, was undertaken by immigration detainees. And that work is not futile, it has purpose. So I strongly uh, contest that actually these companies are profiting from the labour of these workers through means of cost cutting and not having to pay either the market rate or the national minimum wage for citizen workers or those who would have the right to work in the country. 
We've been talking sort of around uh, a key concept that you bring up in this chapter, which is the immigration industrial complex. We've heard about the prison industrial complex. How would you define the immigration industrial complex and who are the players involved in constituting and propagating this system? Yeah, I mean, we get the term immigration industrial complex, obviously, from this idea of the prison industrial complex. And I would think about it in terms of being a system um, of mutually beneficial relations that link different institutions, so private corporations, government and media to the incarceration industry. And I guess one of the other central points is that capital is flowing throughout um, these relations. So uh, private companies are profiting from locking people up within immigration detention centres because they're paid per inmate. You know, it, it goes as far as, you know, even charitable organisations are also uh, sometimes involved within these relations because they can be paid to go in and uh, assess the conditions that people are being kept in, for example. So there's systems of capital that are sort of ongoing throughout these relations. And that's what I mean by the immigration industrial complex, which is the idea that increasing detainee numbers actually increases the profits of particular institutions or private companies. So it's not just about immigration control, it's also now about money as well. Criminal justice or criminal punishment systems typically prescribe the the maximum amount of time a person can be incarcerated. Are time limits placed on immigration detention stays? And the answer to that implies what in terms of, again, this, this question of whether somebody really voluntarily is in a position to voluntarily take on work as an immigration detainee? I think this is one of the issues that the public aren't particularly aware of in the case of uh, immigration detention. So whereas criminal detention attracts a lot of uh, judicial and legal protections, in most instances, that includes a time limit on the period that a detainee can be incarcerated for. That often doesn't apply in immigration detention. Um, And that has many consequences. So number one, it increases the profit margins of the private corporations that are holding the individuals. Um, And it also leads to this sense of uncertainty around the length that you're going to be held within detention you know there's no particular end in sight you don't know whether you're going to be released back into uh, the country that you've you've entered and that you're detained in or whether you're going to be deported back to your country of origin and so that leads to a lot of sort of anxiety and insecurity and as as mentioned it can also be one of the factors that compels someone to work within the detention centre because they're not necessarily sure when they'll be deported so they need to kind of work to save as much money as possible so they can take it home Um, and so yeah that's one of the coercive factors that I identify within the chapter as, as compelling individuals to agreeing or to working within immigration detention. There exists an assumption, Katie, that detainee numbers increase as a result of rising migration. Is that true in your view? No, I don't think so. I think, as mentioned, we need to think about it in a much wider context and we need to think about it in terms of the circulation of capital You know, we need to move away from this idea that detention firstly is necessary as a form of immigration control. It's not necessary. It's extremely expensive. And there are uh, better ways to sort of process people entering um, and staying within a country than the system of immigration detention. So if we begin with that notion, then the two should not be linked um, 
rising numbers of migrants. And again, you know, you need to think about it over a period of time. We don't want to get carried away with this sort of sensational idea that there's hugely rising numbers of migration. There's always been a pattern of migration throughout the world. Um, and the numbers ebb and flow depending on specific global events. It's not that people are particularly fleeing uh, certain countries because they want to come and, um, you know, extract resources from the the destination country. Often it's linked to sort of specific issues that are taking place within the country of origin or specific histories. And so... Yeah, I think this idea that there's like continuous rising migration firstly needs to be problematized. And I think secondly, we need to to really move away from the idea that immigration detention is the only way, only means of controlling certain populations because it's not. Her name is Katie Bales, B-A-L-E-S. She is senior lecturer in law at the University of Bristol Law School. We have been talking about a chapter she contributed to the new volume, Global Labor Migration, New Directions, edited by Eileen Boris, Heidi Gottfried, Julie Green, and Zhu Chiang Tam, and published by University of Illinois Press. Her chapter, Katie's chapter, is entitled Rethinking, quote, Unfree, unquote, Labor, the Immigration Industrial Complex. Katie, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.